Howdy doody, Gunther 2D. You just turned into Albion. Fortnightly. Fuck. What's the word, stinky turds? You just turned into. Fuck. <laughs> you just tuned into Albion, a fortnightly history podcast hosted by a couple of idiots abroad. Or to be a wee bit more specific, an idiot and abroad. As always, it's your boy, Elliot Flood, on the ones and twos, and sitting uncomfortably close to me so we can share a foam microphone on a suspension arm clamped to a dinner table, well, it's Casey Piercy. It is now a good time to tell you that I haven't brushed my teeth today? <laughs> this series talks about the absurd history of the British Isles that we've been learning ever since we left our home planet and moved to, moved to Marmite Country in 2018. Elle, what do you have in store for us today? We'll be looking at a weird disaster that struck down in stinky old London way back when. Something that on the surface sounds pretty cool, like a cumulonimbus cloud raining down chunky peanut butter, but the reality of the situation was far from cool, like chunky peanut butter on your roof gutters, or in your roof gutters, rather. Also, speaking of cool things, how good do we sound right now? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Listen to that smooth mm, silk. Smooth as silk. <clears throat> Silky ganache. Uh, Santa Claus brought us a fancy microphone for Christmas, and by Santa Claus, I mean Jeff Bezos. Uh, we took a week off for the holidays, but we should be back to our regular programming with episodes dropping every other Wednesday. And I think a bit of housekeeping might be in order from a previous episode. Hmm? Indeed. After sharing several pints of nasty Scottish beer in a social club a few weeks ago, I was informed that the phrase painting the town red may not have been credited to rich fuckboy Henry Delapoer Beresford. Uh, and his crazy laddish antics from episode 7. Uh, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first recorded use of the phrase is actually in the good old U.S. of A., um, credited to a Chicago newspaper 25 years after the Mad Marquess met his maker. But thanks to our scouse buddy Liam for shining his large but slender torch on this subject. With this shameful and embarrassing and unforgivable admission, let's get on with our fucked up feminist fact. Today's subject starts with a quote from a 1955 Daily Mail clipping on a murder trial in Hampstead, North London. Six revolver shots shattered the Easter Sunday calm of Hampstead, and a beautiful platinum blonde stood with her back to the wall. Ooh, in her hand was a revolver. Oh, I thought you were going to say Easter egg. <laughs> it was a sexy bunny. <laughs> uh, this depiction is of famed femme fatale Ruth Ellis, of which there have been countless books, plays, TV shows, radio dramas, films, and documentaries made about her. Mm. Originally from Ryle, um, that one is spelled R-H-Y-L. How the okay. fuck do you pronounce that, Welsh people? <laughs> uh, Ryle. Uh, Ellis had been a model and an actress and a Playboy bunny. Not wow. really. But she was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar. bar. <laughs> no, she's actually a nightclub hostess, which I guess <laughs> is also a Playboy bunny. Uh, the 28-year-old mother of two had sparked up a relationship with David Blakely, a 25-year-old race car driver, and they kept a shared pastime of heavy drinking. Mm, nice. Their relationship was rife with abuse and cost Ms. Ellis multiple trips to the hospital, including a March 1955 miscarriage Ugh. because he, quote, thumped me in the tummy, end quote. Oh, my God. But I just have to appreciate, like, this last is straight out of Greece or, like, a Dick Tracy movie. Like, he thumped me in the tummy. 
you're no good, good for nothing, filthy animal. <laughs> Can't you just imagine her with her like yeah. pin curls and her like peroxide blonde hair and her like four inch pumps, just like living the 1950s fantasy. <laughs> Um, on again, off again, in her back-to-black romance, Ms. Ellis acquired a second lover, a former mm. bomber pilot in his mid-30s by the name of Dedman Cusin, who wanted to make her a married woman. Mm. The triangular love situation provoked fierce jealousy on all sides, and the drunken rose continued. <laughs> this love kettle percolated out of control on one Easter Sunday when Mr. Blakely was hiding from Ms. Ellis in a pub and refused to see her or answer her calls. Meanwhile, Cusin had given her a loaded revolver, showed her how to use it, and dropped her off at the pub where Blakely was drinking and hiding out. So when Blakely came outside, she fired two bullets right at him. He hit the pavement, and then she put in a few more shots for good measure. Jeez, holy fuck. One bullet went astray and hit a passing woman in the thumb, which is a detail that I appreciate. <laughs> like, how fucking crazy are stray bullets? Yeah. Like, you're just out for your Sunday shopping, and you have to just get a little bit more butter. And then you just hear a boom, and then you're just flailing blood out of your appendage. That's insane. Oh, that sucks, dude. My hitchhiker's thumb. Ah! <laughs> yeah. I'll never be a hand model again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you have a crazy story about a straight bullet? Oh, yes. Somebody that I know that some of our listeners may know got hit with a straight bullet once. Yeah, what's that story? And he was in his bedroom. Just came through the wall and hit him in the leg. That's the story. There's nothing you want to add? It's private, so I don't want to... <laughs> Up on okay, you. he was having sex, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, I tried not to. <laughs> um, so do you actually know this person, or is this like a rumor of a rumor? No, no, I actually know this person. Okay, do you I want to name them on air? No, Scott Jenkins. Anyway, <laughs> Blakely is bleeding out on the pavement. Cusin is nowhere to be seen. And Ruth Ellis then calmly tells bystanders to call the police. She ended up surrendering to an off-duty policeman who was having a drink inside the pub. Classic. <laughs> because of course he was. Yeah. <laughs> Blakely was DOA. So uh, a mere two months later, it's now June, Ellis's trial. Um, the sensational news of the femme fatale murder swept the country. The Daily Mail noted, quote, in an off-white tweed outfit with black velvet piping, she sat in the center of the crowded court, calm and expressionless, <laughs> end quote. The prosecuting counsel won Christmas Humphreys. I'm loving these names. That's his name. <laughs> Christmas is your first fucking name, and you're an attorney. His brother's Thanksgiving. <laughs> Aww, well, they're English, so it would be more like Boxing Day. Yeah. Christmas and Boxing. <laughs> uh, so Humphreys asked her what she intended to do when she fired the revolver, and she replied, quote, It is obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him, end quote. She declined to plead insanity. Her trial lasted at most two days, so the jury took 25 minutes to find her. Any guesses? I'm going to say not guilty. All right, hit me with that C note. <laughs> I want my feminist fact, feminist fact, feminist fact. I want Casey's my feminist fact, feminist, feminist fact. Casey's feminist fact. And it's fucked up. On July 13th, 1955, Ruth Ellis was the last woman to be executed by hanging Ooh, shit, in Great really? Britain. In the 50s? 1955, dude. God damn, that's, that's crazy. That's fucking insane. Yeah. Like, we've already done some stuff on the witch trials, and that was, like, 200 years before. Yeah. That's nuts. Yeah, that's a lot of fucking broken cervical spines. <laughs> so how do we get from being arrested by a drunken cop in April 
and fast track to hanging dead at the end of a noose in July. Yeah, have a bunch of men on the jury. <laughs> <laughs> You're so smart. <laughs> My punchline was going to be ask Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Hi, yo. <laughs> Well, if the Daily Mail quotes are any indication, this trial had some seriously sexist problems. The sexual immorality of the defendant was a strong factor in the decision not to commute her sentence. So she, was, she wasn't married to David Blakely. She wasn't married to David Cusin. And a lenient view could not be taken when she was associating with and receiving money from another man. Mm, you're too horny. We're going to kill you, doll. <laughs> you're too horny for your own good, Nora. <laughs> Uh, she wasn't married. She wasn't monogamous. Sluts will be shamed, y'all. Uh, secondly, as we know, women are generally held to a higher moral standard than men. So a male committing murder would simply be like a cold-blooded killer. And this is because the act of violence is not outside of what we think it means to be male. But a woman committing murder, it would be so outrageous, so perverse in the 1950s that it would, like, it would fall just short of being a gender traitor. Um, the case file suggests that the premeditated nature of the murder and the fact that it was committed with a gun counted against her. She would be described under misogynistic stereotypes such as weak, foolish, hypersensitive. What? Yeah. So they would have looked more favorably upon him, like her chopping him up with a machete? Or <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Oh, well, or if it was like. She's a, not afraid to get her hands dirty. Exactly. Or I think it was if it was like a crime of passion, mm. you know, like, I don't know. She's. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because women aren't supposed to be cold and calculating and premeditating they're not supposed to like plan uh -huh. and use the brains uh, but also like they're also describing her as hypersensitive like when is the last time a male defendant on stand for murder was described as hypersensitive by the press <laughs> yeah. like he Jeffrey went, Dahmer <laughs> yeah. he's just a little sensitive he's a little hypersensitive <laughs> he's, he was acting hysterical <laughs> Um, also, at the time, gender-based crimes were not recognized, including Ellis's domestic violence, which, as we know, was so severe it resulted in miscarriage. Um, the courts agreed that Blakely had treated Ellis disgracefully and that this had left her emotionally disturbed, but there is no self-defense argument for DV crimes at the time. Thus, the law did not recognize Ellis's experiences of physical and emotional abuse as relevant to her defense. God. Lastly, England did not have degrees of murder, which was like kind of blowing my mind, like first degree, <laughs> second degree manslaughter. So police didn't investigate and jurors did not deliberate how Cusin had primed and encouraged her to kill. Um, they basically, it was an eye for an eye. The mandatory sentence for murder was death. Like she pulled the trigger. She gets, she gets the, the noose. Jesus. Yeah. That's absurd. Um, so the only redeeming part of the story is that the Ruth Ellis case turned into a cause celebre against the death penalty. Uh, in 1950s, um, women were rarely executed in Britain. 90% of those sentenced to death in the 20th century were reprieved. It means that they were like let off of the charges and not, you know, murdered. Uh, Blakely's mistreatment of Ellis and her emotional distress, everybody's like, oh yeah, this is good. Um, they're definitely going to commute her sentence. We're just going to assume that it's going to happen. But it didn't, and thousands of Britons were appalled. Um, so there's this huge like letter-writing campaign. The Home Office has 600 letters, postcards, and telegrams in their wow. files about this case. 90% of them called for a reprieve, um, which means that 10 years later, the UK actually stopped hanging everyone, not just women. That's good. Yeah. So where does this leave us? Well, Ruth Ellis was the mother of two young children, which was a concern for many of these letter writers, one of whom highlighted the lifetime of tragic memory and death in store for her children if she hanged. 
And as certainly as predicted, Andy, her son, killed himself in 1982. Oh, man. That's sad. Cusin always denied giving Ellis the gun. He immigrated to Australia. He lived a full life. He died in 1991. Got away scot-free. Scot-free. The end. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's really sad. Yeah. Classic feminist fact. <laughs> it's not a feminist fact was, unless it's fucked up. Was she like still dressed up to the nines when she got hung? You think they let her dress nice? Yeah, I think I'm kind of imagining like in the style of Greece, like she's still in her prison blues, but yeah. she has like a little tie waist and she's got like her hair in the cute little curls and she's still walking out in stilettos. Or maybe like cat eye glasses and a cigarette or something. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> um, but I do know that like at the time when they give you your final commune or whatever <laughs> they said that they gave her a glass of brandy <laughs> so i think Jeez, that fits the description it really takes the edge off dying yeah but it's also like she's got brandy in one hand and a fag in the other and yeah. she's just that's my last life <laughs> i lived a good one but an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth i'm ruth ellis <laughs> now time for Elliot's Absurd Story Corner. Um, today's Wacky Tale takes place in London <laughs> in the year of our Lord, 1814. I'm sorry to report that the story is a little bit of a bummer. It's not as funny as poo-poo sifters or rotting whales, mm. uh, but we're nice and primed up, primed up from our feminist fact, so we're all in the right headspace. The area we're looking at used to be known, the area in London used to be known as St. Giles. Uh, it was a really destitute neighborhood, mostly made up of Irish immigrants. Uh, this part of town was home to a brewery called the Horseshoe Brewery. Can we still go there? Uh, unfortunately not. This Do, would, Because we don't want to still go there? Yes. Because they were cooking people's heads in vats of boiling oil? Oh, no, no. That pub's still open. <laughs> <laughs> we should go there. Um, so, yeah, Horseshoe Brewery was in the St. Giles neighborhood of London. Uh, this place had been in operation since around 1623, and it was one of the largest producers in London. Um, this neighborhood was known at the time as a rookery, which is an old term for a slum. Uh, neighborhood likes this. Neighborhoods like this were pretty grim. Very filthy, overcrowded with hovels all over the shop. Of course, it's been gentrified to fuck over the years, and now it's an insanely expensive part of town. Hovel rents used to be affordable there. Same hovel now will cost you two grand a month. But there's a coffee station in the lobby, so it's worth it. Mm. Uh, this densely packed neighborhood, um, so just picture this massive neighborhood, and in the middle of it is this huge brewery. Uh, many people are like literally living in the shadow of the 25-foot wall that surrounded it and had their shanties kind of like built up against the brewery wall. So it's like the biker wall. Kind of, yeah. Imagine a brewery, biker brewery in there. <laughs> uh, so St. Giles was not looked upon favorably by people at this time. Um, given what we know about old-timey London, you can imagine the problems that afflicted residents of St. Giles. Unsanitary oh, yeah. conditions. Terrible manners. Terrible manners. <laughs> oh, punctuality, forget about it. And adding extra vowels to all your words. <laughs> uh, the streets were awash with doo-doo. There was lots of diseases, <laughs> exploitation from landlords, so on and so forth. Yay, fun times. <laughs> uh, guess what else was extremely common in St. Giles? Uh, bestiality. Mm, close. Oh, God. Drinking gin all fucking day long. Um, a tradition that many Brits still keep alive to this day. Uh, so essentially, most people just blamed the residents of this neighborhood for their problems. They were seen as being, like, morally weak or inc incapacitated by their own doing, incapable of helping themselves. Basically, everyone just thought they were drunken 
fuck-ups, and nobody cared about the poor folks that lived there. So on October 17, 1814, a dude named George Crick was making his rounds at the Horseshoe Brewery. Now, Georgie Boy was a storehouse clerk, and he had been with the company for about 17 years. They used to make beer back then in these massive wooden vats, okay? Mm-hmm. Just picture a giant barrel that's 22 feet high. Jesus. They were held together by these huge iron hoops that weighed 700 pounds each. Whoa. And kind of just like pinched all the wood together. Yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> so George is on his rounds, and he noticed that one of the tank's iron hoops had slipped off completely. So he said, hmm, that looks a touch dangerous, but better go tell the boss man. His boss told him, not to worry, George Led. Happens all the time. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'm just picturing like an old Victorian fat cat boss like twirling his mustache by a fire. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like, drinking port or something. Like, forget about it. Yeah. Got nothing to worry about. Happens all the time. But if it's a vat, does that mean it's like boiling? Like, uh-huh. what is... Okay, it's yeah. a hot fucking water and a shit ton of water. Mm-hmm. I mean, alcohol water. Yeah. It's yeah. like pre-beer. It's what turns into beer later. Um, so George sat down in his office to write a work order and he heard a strange noise. Mm. Was it a tumbling rumbling from eating too much spotted dick? (laughs) Perhaps it was a team of passing stagecoaches. Oh no, no, no. It was the sound of a giant beer vat exploding. Fuck me. This 22 vat, uh, was in a huge warehouse area with other vats of the same size. All of them were filled four inches from the very top. Yeah. Like to the brim. Uh, the initial explosion, of course, you can picture this, started a chain reaction that caused yes. all the fucking other vats to burst. Oh, my God. Each vat held uh, over a million pints of beer. Yeah. The force of the explosion launched bricks out into the neighborhood and smashed in oh, roofs and shit, just like sending little God. missiles out into this destitute neighborhood surrounding it. That is fucking crazy. Yeah. The 25-foot brick wall surrounding the brewery collapsed in one part and instantly killed a 14-year-old servant girl named Eleanor Cooper who was oh, washing, uh, washing pots at a water pump right next to the wall. Bless you, Eleanor. Yeah. We'll never forget you. R.I.P. Gone but not forgotten, girl. Um, within seconds, a fucking beer tsunami started. Apparently, uh, there was a 15-foot high wave of beer and it destroyed everything in its path. 15 feet high. 15 feet high. A wave, tidal wave of beer, basically. Yeah, and it's it's hot. It's hot. It's not like boiling yeah. molten, but it's oh my god, it's hot. Um, did I mention what type of beer it was? Oh, ugh, stout. This was no golden wave of refreshing Bud Light. No, what was it? Or a deluge of IPA. <laughs> <laughs> this was London fucking porter. Fuck me. Black as coffee. I'm sorry. This is this is like actually my nightmare. I know it is. <laughs> Chocolate malts and a complex flavor. Uh, yeah, this is your nightmare. A 15-foot wave of dark beer. Surprisingly, only eight people were killed in total in the Porter tsunami. Also, this is the moment in time that I kind of wish one of us was a scientist because I want to know about like the, the viscosity of beer. Mm-hmm. Like, would a person float on top of beer or would a person sink under beer? Is it possible to drink your way out? That's the question I would ask. My question, which you won't be able to answer, is how many people attempted it, (laughs) which the answer is half of London. (laughs) Um, So some of the other unfortunate victims, a mother and her daughter were swept away while they were sitting down to dinner. Another young person drowned who was just on the street. And tragically, a wake was being held for a two-year-old in in a cellar apartment. 
when the deluge raged in and killed all attendees. Yeah, if it's in the cellar. Yeah. Oh my God. So St. Giles was a flat, low-lying area. Um, obviously, given what we know from our previous episodes, drainage was basically non-existent. Yeah. All the cellars in the area filled to the very top with beer, and people had to climb on furnitures and stuff like that to survive. After the initial This is flood, a Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, it's basically a similar scenario. Um, after the Porter flood, uh, the beer was waist deep on the streets of St. Giles. And reports started going around that the entire neighborhood was just getting hammered on free beer. Yeah. And it was a total shit show and that there was even an alleged ninth death due to alcohol poisoning. But it turns out that this is total bullshit. Yeah, I don't think papers, it would have been that alcoholic yet. No, well... It would, I think, technically get you drunk, but that was just everyone stereotyping the residents of the neighborhood. Um, what actually happened was they were super well-behaved and helped each other to clean up. There was even a public charity drive in the neighborhood to help with funeral costs for the victims. Aww. So much for St. Giles being the den of crime and immorality. Yeah. The best part of it all, the Horseshoe Brewery went to court and was cleared of all wrongdoing. Okay, everybody. In case you were worried. <laughs> Capitalism at its yeah. finest. Let's hear more. The jury decided the victims lost their lives casually and accidentally <laughs> by misfortune. You know, just through casual fucking stout tsunami. <laughs> it oh happens all the time. Oh my god. I just casually died in a tidal wave of beer. No big deal. Jesus fucking Christ. What are you going to do about it? It's a cost of doing business. Um, I just it, love like those insurance claims that are like, oh, well, we'll cover your house and, you know... With the exception of, you know, acts of God. Yeah. It's like, okay, there's been um, a tsunami. Oh, well, that's not an act of God. That's a tsunami. Yeah. Be like, oh, well, what do you consider <laughs> an act of God then? And why won't you pay for my fucking roof? Yep. It's basically the same thing. Um, the tax man, in fact, gave back the brewery all the taxes that it had paid on the beer it's lost and saved them from bankruptcy. Whew. Thank God. So this is now turned into Wall Street. This has gone from like Hurricane Katrina to yeah, yeah, just... holding Wall Street accountable. <laughs> um, no damages or compensations were paid for in to any of the victims' families or anybody who lost property. How dare you build a hovel in my beer tidal wave? That's your <laughs> fault, you drunken Irish lout. Um, well, I told you it was a sad one today. Yeah. At least we've come a long way since then, and we hold companies responsible for their roles in Castell catastrophes right yes thank god for that thank god for that i don't know about you but i could go for a nice tall pint of porter no i was gonna say we should boycott porter just because of the memoriam for eleanor what's her bucket oh yeah she's yeah. real important too she's really I important remember to her last name. wow <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember her last name. wow <laughs> love you girl <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support for Albion comes from Taleotonic Water with hand-forged juniper berries from the Scottish coast and secret spices assembled from the Near East. Taleotonic Water is the best herbal mixer on the market right now. Next time you're out on the tune, ask your bartender for a genitalia. Better yet, make it a double, a double genitalia. For 20% off, enter promo code Don't Touch My Genitalia at checkout. Subscribe to Albion on every major platform, and we'll see you again for episode 10. Toodle Pit. Tinkity Tone. Bye.